Do you like animals? Yes. Do you also like animals that talk and sing and play piano? Yes. What about like when they wear pants? Doesn't that just kind of weird? Like. Yeah. Unless they're like going to a fancy ball and they just wear like a dress or a shirt. Yeah. Have you ever seen animals do that? Not in real life. My daughter is seven. And she's grown up with animals her entire life. Not real ones, mind you. I have a friend whose father was a zookeeper, and sometimes there were apes and other animals in his house. That's not us. We have a dog. Once our dog brought a baby rabbit into the house, that's about it for close encounters of the animal kind. And let's be honest, most of the animals that most of us encounter are on TV, or in books, or in art. Sometimes they talk, sometimes they wear pants, sometimes they drive cars and play piano. But the one thing these animals almost never do is act like animals. There's a painting at the Minneapolis Institute of Art called The Cat's Paw from around 1824. It shows a monkey wearing some kind of shirt. And there's a stove with hot coals in it. And there's a cat whose paw is being held to the fire by the monkey. It's an illustration of a fable by Jean de La Fontaine. And like a lot of fables in fairy tales, this one is brutal. The monkey has persuaded the cat to retrieve some chestnuts from the fire. And now the cat is paying the price, howling in agony. La Fontaine wrote hundreds of fables in the late 1600s, which were memorized by generations of French kids, and maybe still are. Just like my daughter follows the adventures of animals today through TV and books. Because, for some reason, the best way to learn how to be human has always been to learn from animals. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, a story of animals and people, and why we can't stop thinking of animals as people. It's the art of anthropomorphism. 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 You know what I mean. I'm Tim Gehring. In 1944, a couple of psychologists at Smith College showed their students a movie about two triangles, a circle, and a rectangle. The bigger triangle pushes the smaller triangle around. So... The circle moves inside the rectangle. Now, when the students are asked what this movie is about, they say things like, 
a man has planned to meet a girl, but the girl arrives with another man. So the two men have a fight, and the girl goes to hide in the room. The movie is just a bunch of geometric forms, right? But we can't help describing their interaction in human terms. Like, the triangle is a bully, and the circle is avoiding him. In fact, we can't help seeing the entire non-human world as human-like. Let's go back some 2,500 years ago, more than 500 years before Christ, to ancient Greece, where there's this guy named Aesop going around telling animal stories. Maybe you've heard of Aesop. Supposedly from the island of Samos. Supposedly enslaved at some point. Supposedly rather ugly and undiplomatic. And will get himself thrown off a cliff for insulting the Delphians. Or maybe none of this is true. Maybe Aesop doesn't even exist. And people like Socrates will just attribute a lot of fables coming out of Samos to this non-existent Aesop character. In any case, what we do know are the fables. Hundreds of them. All of them ostensibly about animals. 24 about donkeys. 28 about foxes. 28 about lions. Including this one fable called The Ass, The Fox, and The Lion. Do you know this one? The fox and the donkey are supposedly pals. They have a deal to stick together if they ever encounter a lion. But when they do encounter a lion, the fox hands over the donkey in order to save himself. Except, once the fox ties up his friend for the lion, the lion eats the fox instead. Saves the donkey for later. Maybe you know that story. Maybe you've lived that story. Well, the fables of Aesop, whoever he was, are told and retold for centuries, right? Until Jean de La Fontaine comes along in the 1600s and tells them even better. La Fontaine is a real guy in France with a real job. His dad had been the inspector of waters and forests, basically a glorified game warden. And La Fontaine inherits the post and holds it for 19 years. Mostly, he roams around the woods watching the animals and grumbling about the king. The king is Louis XIV, right? The Sun King, who thinks the world revolves around him. La Fontaine can't stand him. He's not opposed to monarchy. He's just kind of old school and thinks the king should serve his subjects, not the other way around. Or the monarchy won't last much longer. So, in 1660, when a new edition of Aesop's Fables comes out, La Fontaine reads them and decides they could come in handy. (laughs) 
Over the next couple of decades, LaFontaine writes hundreds of fables, loosely based on Aesop's stories, and some completely new ones, in which the animals are always being tripped up by their arrogance, or envy, or hubris. There's the story of Frog, who is envious of Ox's size, so he huffs and puffs to make himself just as big as Ox. But halfway there, he explodes. There's the story of Raven, who tries to act like an eagle, only to die when his claws get tangled up in the wool of a lamb. And then there's the story of the lion, the monkey, and the two asses, in which King Lion is told by his advisor Monkey, maybe you should learn something about the dangers of flattering yourself. So, you know, that never happens to you. And King Lion says, okay, for example. So the monkey introduces the king to these two donkeys, who flatter each other so much that they're blind to their own faults. And yeah, guess who's supposed to see himself in those two donkeys? There's an illustration of this story at the Minneapolis Institute of Art by this guy named Jean-Baptiste Audry, who becomes obsessed with La Fontaine's fables in the 1700s and illustrates 276 of them on blue paper. So it looks like it's perpetually twilight. And in this magical setting, there's the two donkeys yakking it up and the monkey talking to King Lion. And King Lion is looking at the monkey with its claws out and its teeth showing, like, watch it, buddy, or I'll show you who's the real ass. Now, La Fontaine isn't saying anything that Louis XIV doesn't already know, right? There's a popular Latin expression at the time, asinus asinum fricket. The donkey rubs the donkey. It's where we get the word asinine from, acting like a donkey. But no one actually gets the call, the king, asinine. So having these animals tell the story, well, that gives La Fontaine a kind of plausible deniability. Listen, King, this isn't about you. It's about a lion, a monkey, and some donkeys. No reason to get upset. In fact, La Fontaine writes these fables as rhyming poems, like for kids. And when his first book of fables comes out in 1668, La Fontaine dedicates it to the king's son, who's seven. Well, the king isn't sure what to make of these animal stories. In the 1600s, there's a big debate raging in France about the nature of animals, the line between animals and humans. On the one hand are guys like La Fontaine, whose ideas about animals go back to the Renaissance, when artists and philosophers thought of animals as kind of noble, happy beasts, wild and free and full of passion, maybe even morally superior to humans. As one Renaissance philosopher put it, 
quote, the most vulnerable and frail of all creatures is man. And at the same time, the most arrogant. By the 1660s, people are even experimenting with transfusing animal blood into humans. Thinking it'd be good for us frail humans, because animals are basically better, right? One of these transfusion advocates declares that, quote, great advantage will follow from mixing different blood, since the blood of animals has fewer impurities than that of men. Because debauchery and irregularity and eating and drinking are not so common in them as in us. But on the other hand, are guys like Rene Descartes and the rationalists, who think of animals as little more than dumb machines, with no intelligence, no reasoning, no wisdom, totally at the mercy of their instincts. King Louis flirts for a while with the idea of the noble beast. There's a story about him staging a couple of spectacles in 1663, fights between exotic and native animals. But his heart isn't in it. It seems too violent, too baroque, too Italian. And then, in 1668, the same year La Fontaine's first book of fables comes out, both the human and the animal involved in a blood transfusion in France end up dying. And that's the end of that. No more blood experiments. No more noble beasts. Four years later, in 1672, King Louis commissions 39 sculptures of animals from La Fontaine's stories and puts them in his labyrinth, the Royal Maze at Versailles. And then he gets rid of all the predators in his animal collection and fills the Royal Menagerie instead with birds, mostly. Beautiful, long-necked, exotic birds. And so, when visitors come to Versailles, first they must pass through the labyrinth with all its wild beasts before they come to the royal menagerie with its quiet, civilized animals. As if to say, when you're done wandering around La Fontaine's old world of violence and superstition, come join me in the new world of grace and harmony, enabled by the absolute rule of your favorite king, moi. Or, you know, die. Let's skip ahead 150 years to the Victorian era in England. The Industrial Revolution is underway. People are moving to cities. London is the biggest city in the world. And they're leaving behind their animals. Suddenly, they start seeing animals differently. They start seeing them as moral and kind and loyal. Not just dinner. In fact, there's a Victorian painting called One of the Family. 
in which a dog is joining the family at the dinner table. And a horse is sticking its head in through a window so mom can feed it. Cats aren't so welcome. Those are for catching mice. But dogs, guinea pigs, rabbits, squirrels, birds, hedgehogs, plenty of psychologists are recommending them as companions, even role models for kids. Charles Dickens has a pet raven, right? Dante Gabriel Rossetti, the pre-Raphaelite painter, keeps a wombat. In the book Our Domestic Pets in 1871, the Reverend J.G. Wood recommends owls as a pet. Kind of. There are worse pets to be found than owls, he writes. By proper management, they can be made into very companionable birds, quaint, grotesque, and affectionate withal. The chief drawback to the owl, he notes, is its nocturnal habits. Yeah, that's a problem. But even monkeys have their advocates. In the book Notes on Pet Monkeys and How to Manage Them, from 1888, the author Arthur Patterson offers some suitably simian names, like Jacko and Nips and Peggy. And if your pet monkey isn't behaving, find a friend, a human friend, and a stick. And have your friend swing the stick around the monkey's cage to frighten it. And then, take the stick and give your friend a good thrashing to within an inch of his life to show the monkey you're on his side. You'll be, quote, sworn friends from that time. Of course, you might not have many human friends. Something happens in the Victorian era that brings animals and humans a little closer. Darwin happens, for one thing. People had already been thinking about the interconnectedness of people and animals for some time, right? And so, when Charles Darwin comes out with On the Origin of Species in 1859, many people are ready to believe his theory of evolution, that people and animals have a lot in common, including ancestors. At the same time, the romantic idea of children as being closer to nature than adults starts to take hold. This idea that children are more naive, more primitive, more poetic, literally closer to animals than adults are. The child is almost like a missing link between animal and human, primitive and civilized. Darwin himself makes the argument in a paper called Biographical Sketch of an Infant, in which he declares that children begin to speak with the same sounds as apes. Well, it isn't long before artists and writers start playing around with these ideas. Rudyard Kipling puts Mowgli in the Indian wilderness, right, in his Jungle Book series in 1894. A boy learning how to live from a bear and a panther and monkeys. And if people can learn from animals... Surely animals can learn from humans, right? 
1867, Georges de Maurier draws a cartoon called Turning the Tables, in which animals and clothes are wandering around a zoo, staring at humans in cages. Well, you might think that seeing animals as human-like would be good for animals. Maybe we'd have more empathy if we saw them as ourselves. But it hasn't really worked out that way. Rachel Carson, the famous environmental writer, gave sea creatures names in her first book about the ocean in the 1940s, thinking it would help draw people into the strange and foreign place. A mackerel called Skomer, an eel called Anguilla, National Geographic often gives animals names in its nature documentaries for kids. But people still trash the place, right? Atlantic mackerel populations are just 8% of what they were 40 years ago. And we're eating so many eels, they might go extinct in Europe. In fact, depicting animals as human-like is probably hurting animals by creating unrealistic ideas of their true nature. A few years ago, a publisher in Minneapolis started a line of children's books that tried to show dogs and horses and other animals the way they really are. No pants, no Disney eyes. With the idea that we might care about animals more if we understood their real lives, their real problems which can take some getting used to, right? Because if we're being honest, the biggest problem is often us. Let's go back to that painting at the Minneapolis Institute of Art of the cat and the not-so-nice monkey by Edwin Landseer. Now, Landseer grows up drawing animals in London He's five when he starts sketching dogs. And his father decides he's going to be an animal artist. His father takes him to the menageries at the Tower of London so he can draw the animals. And when he's still a kid, he starts training under a painter who shows him how to dissect animals so he can study their bones and muscles. He paints a lot of dogs at first. Dogs that act like humans and love humans. Like the dog sitting devotedly by the coffin of its owner in a painting called The Old Shepherd's Chief Mourner. Or the dogs rescuing a man buried in snow in the Alps with little barrels of brandy around their necks, a myth he invented. People love these dogs. People like Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, who hire them to paint their own pets. But in the 1830s, Landseer starts painting a lot of deer. Hunted deer, usually. Often dead. Often with hunting dogs around them. And then, in the 1850s, that changes too. One morning in April 1851, 
Queen Victoria and Prince Albert leave Buckingham Palace after breakfast and head over to Landseer's house. And there, in his studio, is a huge painting of a stag with enormous antlers, mist rising from the mountains. You've seen it, even if you've never seen the painting. It's been reproduced on whiskey bottles for the last hundred years. A deer, alone in the wilderness, master of his domain. People are dropping out of his pictures, and the animals are becoming more free, more wild, more natural. People start worrying about him. Eventually, his family has him declared insane. But he seems to know what he's doing. In 1864, he paints two polar bears in the Arctic, rummaging through the remains of Sir John Franklin's doomed expedition. One ripping apart a flag, the other gnawing on a ribcage. They look fierce and happy. Landseer calls it, Man proposes, God disposes. As if to say, the world doesn't revolve around us. It's not made in our image. We will be eaten, one way or another, by something or other. And it will not, most likely, be wearing pants. This has been The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art and made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Gehring. You can listen to The Object wherever you listen to podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, on Audible, in a box with a fox, wherever you listen. Subscribe so you and your pets never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening.